Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Stu, and this is a special edition of the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I had the good fortune to be interviewed by Aaron Fung of uh, Better Birth UK, uh, who's got a great following on Instagram and is very creative with her posts. And I suggest that you look her up at Better Birth UK uh, on Instagram. And she's a hypnobirthing specialist and antenatal teacher. And I had a good conversation with her um, on her podcast about breech birth. And we thought we'd put it up here so that you could see it for those of you who don't follow her or had, had missed it. So I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation. And you, some of you may have heard that, you know, this is my thing. I, lo I love uh, talking about breech birth. I think we cover pretty much everything. And repetition is the mother of all learning, as we've talked about in previous podcasts. So enjoy this and we'll uh, see you next time. Bye. Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. I'm extremely excited today to be joined by the wonderful Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Um, he's an obstetrician. Um, for the last 11 years, he's been a home birth obstetrician, which is fantastic, in California, in the States. He's a published author. He's had peer-reviewed papers um, published on home birth and breech birth. And he's a fierce advocate for informed decision making. Um, he's an expert in both breach and twin birth, and as well as, as, a, as, well as a lecturer. And I'm ex extremely excited to be talking to you today about um, specifically breach birth. Welcome. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. I didn't start out to be all those things, but that's sort of how my life is. Path has taken me to where I am at these things now, right? Yeah, and what, what an amazing path to take down as well. I mean, the amount yeah. of good that you're doing. Yeah, I wanted to be a forest ranger. <laughs> I did. I did. And now I'm a home breach specialist. Well, or more or less, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very, very excited. I, I, I'll be honest, I put a question on my Instagram stories and I asked um, if anybody had any questions for you about breach birth. And... Um, you are unique in the amount of uh, messages going into my DMs from people, A, wanting to know about breech birth, and B, saying, oh my God, you're talking to Dr. Stu. <laughs> and people are genuinely very, very excited and interested to know what you have to say. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you've, uh, that you've agreed to come on the podcast. Well, I'm appreciative of being here. And if I can spread the word on uh, getting the, on the normalcy of, birth and the normalcy of breech birth and and maybe get people to challenge the current status quo of not teaching it and to inspire some younger midwives and hopefully even younger doctors to demand that they learn it from their elders because as my friend Elliot Berlin who produced the the documentary heads up the disappearing art of breech delivery um says that uh, if we don't teach this breach soon the ones who know how to do it are dying off he says <laughs> i always laugh when i see that but it, but since he, that video came out one of the doctors in the video has died that's dr wu from glendale and and uh yeah it's a it's an art and the midwives right now in the world are the torchbearers of this art because obstetricians are 
are have been obtuse in in their resistance to learning a skill that makes the profession unique and should be a core skill of any obstetrician. I can't imagine being a specialist in something and not knowing how to do one of the most unique things about that specialty. It'd be like an open heart surgery, not knowing how to do a bypass. I mean, I just don't know how you can bill yourself as an obstetrician and be afraid to do breech delivery um, or why not. Do you think that is, though? Why, why do you think there's that reluctance? Well, there's the, the, it's a long story and it goes back um, probably to the dawn of mankind as to what motivates people to do certain things. But in the 70s and 80s, there was some arguments going on about whether vaginal breech birth was better than cesarean. Cesarean was becoming more popular. In 1970, the C-section rate in my country was 5%. So it wasn't a very common thing that, it would, that to be done. It was almost as rare as breech delivery because breech delivery was three to 4%. And in those days, breech deliveries were just uh, considered normal. And as a matter of fact, obstetricians loved breech deliveries. They loved complete breech, actually more over than frank breech because there was something they could grab onto. And breech in those days was hands-on, not hands-off. Hmm. And so it was something that was a taught as a normal core skill. And then there were began to be some papers from academicians. There's always academicians out there who want to make a name for themselves by changing something. You know, we now have the ARRIVE trial and the 39-week guys, and we have, you know, all these different aspects of things. And so they started putting out papers and looking at uh, breaches born by cesarean versus breaches born vaginally. But the papers were all were all confusing because they didn't really control for a lot of the things, the skill of the practitioner, the desire of the mother, the, the gestational age, the position of the baby, whether there were any anatomic problems with the baby or anything like that. So they started getting some papers that showed breach delivery was fine and some pages, papers that said C-section for breach was better. And so there was a battle going on and slowly but surely began to be eliminated from teaching um through the 80s and 90s people don't know that because they think everything changed in 2000 when the term breach trial came out which was a paper which only looked at about 2000 breach mothers and from that paper they concluded uh, they were conclusively concluding that c-section was much safer than vaginal breach birth uh and so it sort of why did that have an effect because the, the the pathway was groomed over those previous 20 years to get doctors to be looking for an out. And so this is sort of a, a paper that's, that fills what's called confirmation bias. Hmm. Paper came out, it confirmed what people wanted to believe and they automatically adopted it immediately. And in all the teaching institutions around the world, they began to stop teaching breech birth. And in hospitals that were doing breech birth, they began to ban breech birth. Within two years, they looked at that study and they found that there were so many flaws in that study that it should have been completely ignored. And plus every other study that's come out since that time has showed there's very little difference between morbidity and mortality for babies born breech um, vaginally versus cesarean, but we know that it's better for the mother and the mother's future babies to have a vaginal breech delivery than a cesarean, but that doesn't seem to really matter. And even though those papers have come out, the, the, the type was set, if you can think of an old printer, it's, it was just already set that we're gonna not teach it anymore. And it, then a cognitive dissonance sets in, and so people who say that breaches should be taught, they're they're outcast or they're punished or they're you know they're few and far between because you stand up, you get your head chopped off if you support breach birth, and it's going to take. So that's what happened, um, and then the forces were such that economic forces, 
hospital gets paid more for a C-section than a breech birth. A doctor probably doesn't get paid much more, but a doctor can be in and out in 45 minutes, as opposed to having to spend hours at the hospital because the hospital, if you have a breach in labor, will often put in a policy that makes it untenable for the doctor to do it. Like he'll have to be in the hospital for all 12 hours that the woman's in the hospital, missing out on his family life, missing out in his office, missing out on everything. For the same amount of pay that he would get if he came in at 7.30 in the morning was out by 8.15 for a C-section. Um, so expediency was one thing. Medical legally, they felt like uh, if you have a bad outcome with a breach um, and you didn't do a C-section, then you're gonna get sued. Uh, not surprisingly to somebody like me, many of the bad outcomes with breech birth and a lot of the studies were breech births born by cesarean section because if you don't know how to do a breech birth and, and the breech baby comes out breached at cesarean section, yeah. then you're, you're going to make the same mistakes you would have made if it was vaginally. So they had brachial plexus injuries and neck injuries and stuff like that. So you have that and then you just have ego. A doctor who doesn't know how to do breach doesn't want to admit that he doesn't know how to do breach. So they, they, what do they say instead? It's dangerous, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it's, it's a, it's a rationalization of their position. Because how else do they say to their clients, breach is safe. I just don't know how to do it. Now that would be ethical to do, and and there are some doctors that do that, and I admire them greatly. Mm -hmm. um, but most doctors will just say the stupid things like the head will get stuck or the cord will fall out or whatever, and you hear it and and. Fear is the greatest motivator of anything, stronger than love, stronger than hate. Nothing is strong as fear when it comes to motivating people to do or not do stuff, as we've seen now in real life in the whole world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's sort of why it's disappeared mm -hmm. um, from the teaching institutions. It, it's not an ethical decision that they made, um, but it's a combination of just them thinking they're being practical, they're being safe. So much bad stuff has been in the done in the name of safety, but safety is a canard. Mm. It's a false. It's a false argument. Um, depends on people define safety differently. Some people think one percent is very safe. Some people think one percent is really high. Mm. And who are we to decide? And ultimately, what the medicine, the medical profession should have done was they should teach the skill, because everyone now and then is going to have a breech birth that comes in, and they're going to not know what to do, and that's terrible but teach the skill so that a doctor could give a woman all the options and then let the woman exactly. decide what's best for her, her family and her future fertility plans. Because no one asks a breech mom with a primate breach. And I know this from experience and I shouldn't say no one because I made it a promise in my career never to say never or always. Mm -hmm. But in general, this has never failed when a woman's come to my office for a breech consult and I will ask them the question when their doctor recommended a C-section, did your doctor ever ask you if you want more children? And the answer is always no, the doctor never asked me that question. So the doctor is not concerned about that woman's health, psyche, or future babies. They're only concerned about, if people listen to me, they know I talk about the only endpoint that matters is a crying baby in the bassinet. And I know that's cruel, but, it's, but, it, but sometimes simplification is the best way to understand what's going on. And that, that that's that's not unique to to the states. I mean, that happens in the UK all the time. You know, when people go in and they see their their, their consultant or their midwife, the risks. Like, there's one thing I say to my clients when we talk about having those antenatal meetings and discussing your options is when you talk about risk, it's not just the risk of 
consenting to the procedure that they're offering. It's also the risk of um, of not doing something. You need to, risk is a two sided thing, and quite often we get a biased view of what risk is. We only get told that one side. Um, and you know, it's a really valid point. You know, talking about C section and talking about the risk of the C section, because I, I I I hazard to guess that probably quite often when people go in to go see a midwife or a consultant and they talk about breach, um, the risks are, are weighted towards having a vaginal breach birth and, and and dissuading them from from doing that rather than talking about the risks that are involved with a C section. Um, yeah, to the credit of the Royal College. Um, when in their in their consenting process, and they have the best, their green top guidelines are the best guidelines out there for breach. And and to their credit, they say that people need to be informed of the risks of cesarean section. But what's interesting is the American College of OBGYN re, re, revised its guidelines about two years ago, I think. And in it, they they said that breach birth in the hospital setting. Of course, they never support home setting, and that's fine because they don't support home for anything. But but in the hospital setting is a reasonable choice in skilled hands. However, because skilled hands are diminishing, most women will have a cesarean section. But they say, if you offer a vaginal breech birth, you need to discuss all the risks of a vaginal breech birth. And they leave it at that. And there's a, there's a sentence missing, mm -hmm. which is what you know, and you just said, is that there's no sentence in the American College's guidelines about you discuss all the risks and benefits of a cesarean breech birth. Mm -hmm. And the mother, on the mother's, on the baby, and all the mother's future babies, never discussed it's not in there and i don't know if it's left out purposely or if it's just left out because because the people who sit in a room are so all like-minded that no one ever raised their hand and said you know we should talk about the risk of c-section too i really would like to know how who makes these guidelines who sits on these committees and how many people are on them mm -hmm. and are these decisions unanimous is there nobody that speaks up mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't you know that. I guess I really don't want to know that much because I'm not interested in academia. But yeah. but I, I that's how it works. Mm -hmm. Is that Royal College has been better at saying? And Royal College also says that any hospital that offers labor and delivery should have a skilled breach provider on hand. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that your hospitals aren't doing that. I know that our hospitals aren't doing that. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, <clears throat> if it is a, a disappearing skill. Um, then, then it's going to be difficult to, to 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 sustain that to keep on offering that 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 facility of having somebody who is competent in in, in breach birth. Um, but you're you're doing work to kind of uh, counterbalance that because you you lecture and you teach on on breach birth. Yeah, uh, I teach along with my uh, uh, colleagues who have a separate organization, Rick uh, Fries and David Hayes, do the Breach Without Borders. They're all over the world more often. Um, but they, they, we, we both teach breach. We teach breach. We have a thing called hashtag reteach breach, and we we reteach it. But the problem is, is almost everyone that attends that is a midwife. So there's very few doctors that attend it. Uh, Rixa is an academician, so she's trying to get into programs, and I think she's going to have some more success as the years go by of getting in because we could teach residents in a one or two day seminar more about breach delivery than they'll learn in anything in four years uh, of their training. And even though they, they probably wouldn't be confident enough to go out in the world and do breach delivery just like that, if they had a woman come in with a butt, butt sticking out of the vagina or two feet sticking out or a foot sticking out, they would know what to do. 
and they would not panic. People fear what they don't understand. And so how can you as an obstetrician not know this core skill um, that makes you unique? Because otherwise, what do you do that, that some other specialty can't do? I talk about this a lot. I mean, if it's just delivering babies, midwives can do that. If it's doing C-sections, surgeons can do that. Family practice doctors can do that if they have to. If it's GYN surgery, well, you have GYN oncologists and reproductive endocrinologists who can do that if it's hormones or menopause or whatever, you have reproductive endocrinologists can do that. If it's high risk obstetrics, you can have maternal fetal medicine specialists that do that. So what's the generalist OBGYN's job anymore, except to decide where to refer the woman, which specialist to refer the woman to? Mm. Because very few women in my community here in Los Angeles ever get through a normal pregnancy without at least seeing some maternal fetal medicine specialist for a 12 week scan or a 20 week scan or something. It's almost as if you go through all this training and come out in four years of residency to then be a, a primary care referral doctor as opposed to a doctor. I mean, there are, there are things that are, again, we get back to sometimes the economic forces. Here's a crazy one. When we're residents, we learn how to take care of pregnant women who have diabetes. We learn how to manage their insulin and all that stuff. When we come out in the real world, if I'm an obstetrician and I manage a woman's diabetes, the insurance company does not pay me extra for that. So why am I going to do that? If I refer them to an endocrinologist or an internist, um, they get paid. But I don't get paid for the same work. Mm -hmm. So the system is the problem more than anything else. There are good people, but you good people in a bad system, yeah. are, it's gonna, not going to turn out well. And and I don't believe that the system we have here in my country, maybe even your country, is reparable. I don't think you can fix it. Hmm. I think that people say, well, we'll tinker with this, we'll tinker with that. No, you can't. You, you, the people that are running it are not going to give up power. They're not going to change things. Um, they're just not going to do it. So I think that it's going to have to come from demand yeah. from the women. And I am a believer in supply and demand. And I think if there's a demand for a certain supply of skills that then some residency programs, some other programs will begin to, to think that reteaching breach is a good idea. If we could get insurance companies to pay us slightly more for a vaginal breach delivery than they pay for a cesarean, that would be a start. If we could start to do those things. It's not like, I mean, it's almost like you have to leave a, a breadcrumbs out to get people to do it, but so what? Yeah. How we get there is not as important as trying to get to where we want, where, where women have this option because breach birth is a variation of normal. It's fun to do. They succeed or not for the same reason that a head down baby succeeds. Mm -hmm. The, the C-section rate in skilled hands is about the same. Slightly higher because we don't generally, you know, we don't generally augment or, you know, if a woman's labor with a breach peters out, we generally think a C-section is probably smarter. Whereas if it was a head down baby, we'd, all, we'd send them in for an epidural and Pitocin yeah. from the home birthing world. So it's a little bit higher, but you're talking about a 20% C-section rate in primips. Mm -hmm. That's less than the C-section rate of anybody walking into the hospital, of any hospital probably in your community. Mm -hmm. And that's the C-section rate I have for primips. With multips, my C-section rate for breach after 11 years of doing them is still zero. Wow. It won't wow. be. At some point, there'll be a multip who has a breach that won't get, will get stuck or will need will get yeah. in some sort of stress and need to come out. But, uh, you know, we're talking, of, you know, of probably about 50 deliveries of multips. That's amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, again, these numbers don't reach statistical significance. I'm just one guy. Mm -hmm. um, about 44% of my practice is breaching twins when it should be 6% of the average practice because there are people who don't have choices. Yes. Um, and because I work with midwives, most people who just have a head down baby don't need me. Mm -hmm. So I'm really thrilled when I get a head down singleton multiple pregnancy. That's a <laughs> what, so if, if the, the ability to facilitate breech birth is, is, is disappearing, where, what, what options does that leave somebody if, if they do want to have a vaginal breech birth? Because that is something that somebody asked me on Instagram, you know, it, yeah. what, what, what are my options? What can I do? Well, I mean, as a, as a, as a medical person, I'm not a big advocate of, of free birthing. So I'm not a big somebody who says that, that you should do that. But, but certainly that's, that's an option, especially for multips. Um, but I'm not advocating for that, just uh, for, you know, yep. disclaimer. Yep. Um, obviously, certain jurisdictions have laws against midwives doing breach delivery. Yes, in um, the States, I, I, I heard on your podcast, you were talking about California midwives can't facilitate breach birth, which seems crazy. Since 2014, yeah. The, the doctors exacted their pound of flesh for the idea that midwives were going to be autonomous. Midwives are fighting for their autonomy mm. from, from being supervised by doctors who don't know anything about what midwives do. They got that, but then the midwives exacted their pound of flesh and took away their right to do um, breaches or twins mm -hmm. in the home setting. So there are certain states where they can still do it, and there are certain midwives who do it under the radar. But again, you can't really find them, and you can't really rely on that. But if you have to travel, if in your community there isn't a hospital or a doctor that does a breach, but there's one that's 100 miles away, um, try to make an effort to go and make a consult with that person and see it. Uh, same thing with midwives. If you, if you don't have your local people don't have it, you want to try to find something. And the worst case scenario is that you, you fly to Frankfurt, Germany, or you fly to um, Sydney, Australia, and you go with Andrew Bissett or Frank Lewin or you know, you go to certain institutions that have breach centers, hmm. um, especially if you if it's your first baby, and especially if you want more children. Yeah. Because any kind of morbidity that you might reduce by having a C-section on that first baby, um, if you want more babies, you all you've done is pass that morbidity downstream, and now you've increased the risk to all your future babies because you have a scarred uterus. So, and even though that's a small risk, that's still, that, that's no greater than the risk of having a vaginal breech birth. So, yeah, that's a really, really valid point. Cause I think lots of people don't realize that, or they don't, they don't consider it, you know, when they're thinking about a, um, a C-section and the risks. And, and to be honest, it's not just the risks of scarring, you know, the long-term potential impact on on the babies themselves as well from from a surgical birth i think is something that isn't isn't talked about enough um and isn't isn't um isn't considered i think yeah, and my friend jen camel who jen jen camel who runs vbacfacts.com um she says that the risk of placenta accreta or percreta mm -hmm. is higher after two c-sections than the risk of ruptured uterus after two c-sections mm -hmm. So if you're going to have four kids and you have two C-sections because you had a breach and then you just had a repeat C-section, you, you are now more at risk of having a placenta accreta and possibly losing your uterus or having some sort of weird, really bad outcome. 
um, than you would have if you just had a vaginal breech birth in the first place. So ideally, we need to get more access to vaginal breech birth, and that's what we're trying to do. And also, you know, the, the scary thing is, is that some people, and you have every right as a, as a woman in labor with a breech to go to the hospital and say, I'm refusing a C-section. Yeah. The problem is, is if the hospital has nobody there that's skilled, a couple things are going to happen. One is that you're going to be surrounded by fearful people, which mm -hmm. is never good for laboring. Two, they may threaten you with, in your country, it's called social services, yeah. uh, that sort of thing, because you're, you're endangering your baby, according to the, these experts. Mm -hmm. right? um, or they'll have somebody that doesn't know what they're doing trying to put their hands on your baby or, or whatever, not knowing about all force positioning, not knowing about the cardinal movements of a breach and how they rotate mm -hmm. and how to deliver the aftercoming uh, arms or head if there's a problem. They don't know. And so that's a, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to make sure that your facility knows what they're doing, but you have the right to refuse any recommended treatment. And certainly a C-section for breach is not indicated unless certain criteria are not met. And we can when we get to talking a little bit more about how does someone decide whether the breach is a good candidate for vaginal delivery, we can mm -hmm. do that in a minute when you, get me, when you guide me to that area. Yeah. But I just wanna say that, that it's, it's a woman's obligation to find that option. And it may not be easy, mm -hmm. but don't accept less. Bliss always has this analogy, maybe you and your, you probably heard it, but maybe your listeners have it about the different, about weddings. Have you heard the wedding thing? Yeah. yeah okay. It's getting, it's getting around now. I mean, the amount of effort and, and energy you put into planning your wedding, mm -hmm. um, picking the dress, picking the food, uh, picking the band, picking the invitations, uh, all that stuff. It's expensive. It's time consuming. You put a lot of time in it for this one event that has a 50% divorce rate. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But the birth of your children, you're told, well, you can't do that. Okay. I'll just go there. Mm -hmm. And this is a life event that you will remember forever. Yep. And we just abdicate the responsibility for that because we it's because traditionally that's what we've been told to do. Mm -hmm. That tradition has to stop. Mm -hmm. And we now have to take back birth. Um, and I think there's a, a growing movement. The more I on Instagram, the more I see people, I I'm starting to follow people right and left now who are who I never knew existed before that are coming out with really good um, information uh out there so this is um it's it's growing and it and this is how you put pressure on the status quo to get them to change yeah and people need to start demanding of their hospitals demanding of the residents if you live in a community that has a medical school you should get a group of women together and they should go and talk to the dean of the medical school and um say we want you to teach breach delivery and, and more importantly in residency programs that are obstetrical Breach in medical school may be a little bit, they'll just academically learn about it, but they'll learn how scary it is. And that's it. And that needs to change. Mm -hmm. And they need to bring people in who know what they're doing. And a lot of academic institutions are not happy bringing in people like David Hayes or me, because, you know, we're just these guys out in the world doing the work. You know, we don't, we're not in the same club as the academic elites. And there's an ego thing that comes into place. You know, if we don't know how to do it, how can we bring in some guy that does know something that we don't it's embarrassing hmm. um i'm not kidding that, that 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 is a real thing that happens and so we need to get break through those barriers we need to break these silos down we need to have midwives go in if they don't want me to come in have midwives i have sean walker she's you know sean is is big in your country 
have Dr. Walker go in and teach. And I think she is to some degree, um, but we need about, you know, two dozen Sean Walkers. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one, one good thing about living in the UK is how small it is. So if your local hospital doesn't have somebody who is competent in breech birth, we don't generally have to travel that far to find another hospital where you probably will find somebody who is capable of, of facilitating that, or you can find yourself a, a, an independent midwife. Who is and you don't have to worry about whether your insurance will cover it or not. No. In my country, you know, if somebody has Kaiser insurance, they can't go to Cedar Sinai. And if they have uh, Blue Cross, they can't necessarily go to this hospital because they don't take Blue Cross. And so, yeah, there's, it's, it's much more complicated in my yeah. country. Yeah, no, we the supplies worldwide. This applies to Thailand, this applies to Nairobi, Kenya, yep. applies everywhere. These people need to start being made to feel like they have to learn breach back again because the women are demanding it. So, you, you, you mentioned about um, <clears throat> uh, different types of breach and, and feasibility of, of, of having a vaginal breach birth. What, what are the, the things to consider if you have got a breach baby? Well, I saw you, you had a post, I think, uh, which showed the different pictures of breaches. I saw mm -hmm. that. I love your posts, by the way. They're just, they're just Thank great. You. Especially the ones where you're like dan dancing. <laughs> All my reels of me pointing, pointing at things. And magic, <laughs> it reminds me of Bewitched. It reminds me of Samantha. And you're just pointing at it. I my nose like that, though. <laughs> yeah, you should do that with some of them. Um, there are many different types of breaches. The, the most common are either frank breach, which is where the feet are up by the face and baby's in what's called the diving pike position. It's where the hips are flexed and the knees are extended. Mm -hmm. And then there's complete breach where the baby's in the somersault position where the hips are flexed and the knees are flexed. Mm -hmm. Those are the two most common make up probably 70, 80% of, uh, of, of breaches. Um, either one of those is perfectly capable of having a vaginal breach delivery. Incomplete breach at term is also a safe vaginal delivery option. Footling breach is where the feet, where the legs are extended at the hips and the knees is almost never seen at term because there just isn't room for the baby to be standing up like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that you see in prematurity, but you rarely see it in um, term breaches. And so somebody who examines a woman or sees a, or a foot pops out, they'll say, oh, it's a footling breach. No, 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 it was just a, it was just a complete breach where once the cervix got out of the way and the baby decided to stick its leg out and pop out pops its leg. But, mm -hmm. but the, di the, the dilating wedge of the butt and the thighs or even one thigh is bigger than the head. Mm -hmm. And your midwife friends, your midwife uh, listeners can, can take a tape measure at their next birth and they can measure the head and then take a tape measure around the baby's butt and two thighs. And you'll see that the circumference is generally bigger. Uh, so it's not like the head's going to get sick. The things that people say is because they anthropomorphize the baby into being a human like I am. And if your head were stuck in a box, you'd be panicking because you need oxygen to breathe. Mm. Babies are not using oxygen. They're getting oxygen through their umbilical cord. Mm. They are not breathing. The, they're not going to suffocate. Another thing you hear all the time is, is a cord prolapse. Well, if you have a breech baby, most breech babies have been ultrasounded because they're, they're either tried aversion or they've just been ultrasound to see what position they're in. And you can use color flow or whatever else to see if there's any cord down by the butt. If there's no cord down by the butt on Tuesday and the baby's frank breach or complete breach, there's, no, there's not gonna be any cord down by the butt on Thursday. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right? It just doesn't, I mean, everything can happen, but it, that's so rare that it's not worth mentioning. So cord prolapse is not something that, that is real, except in the minds of people who don't understand the physiology of bridge. Mm-hmm. And a reason that they want to talk people out of having a vaginal trial because they're scared of it themselves. So they project their own fears onto these people with, with right. this falseness. Um, so frank breach, complete breach, incomplete breach, um, generally reasonable things to labor. Um, a kneeling breach, which you almost never see, which is like baby's on his knees, never really see that. Footling breach, you're not going to see a term. So the only really ones that aren't good are when the cord is down below. It's called a funic presentation. And that's that. And you also want to see that the baby's head has the ability to flex with the chin down to the chest. Now, does the baby's head have to always be flexed? No. You just want to know that the baby has the ability to flex its head. Um, why is that important? Because the, the final cardinal movement in a breech birth vaginally is head flexion. In a breech birth cephalically or head down, the last cardinal movement is just about, is what? Is extension mm-hmm. before external, before it back, rotates back to the side. But babies deliver by extension vaginally head down and they deliver by flexion. And they, they know that. So you want to know that the baby's head can flex. Mm-hmm. There's rare conditions, things called torticollis of the neck or even a congenital goiter that could prevent a baby from flexing its head. So you want to make sure that the baby has no gross anomalies, is able to flex its head. I like to see a baby weigh between five and nine and a half pounds. I would never tell a woman that she can't have a trial of labor because I thought the baby was more than nine and a half pounds. I just sort of have this range Mm -hmm. because the unreliability of ultrasound is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Never be excluding people for that because breech babies, if they're too big, will just have cephalopelvic disproportion as if there was a head down. It's not called cephalopelvic because it's, I don't know, there's a term for butt pelvic or audio <laughs> audio pelvic uh, disproportion maybe um but you would never do that there are breach programs in my in my state that i've heard that have a cutoff of eight pounds mm. and so i i had a woman once who two, two months ago contacted me saying i wasn't a candidate for a breach birth because my baby weighed estimated feet away was eight pounds one ounce or something like that it's like oh my god so these are people that live in the algorithm method. Yeah. And that's not a method. That's not a world that, that normal people should ever live in. All right. Algorithms are for maybe teaching or for being counters, but they're not for reality because, because we don't live on an algorithm. All people aren't the same. And so, and the pelvis is a dynamic organ. The baby is not a cement baby. All right. The baby is flexible. The pelvis is flexible. The, the system is designed. Nature designed it to yeah. work. Okay. We forget that. And we, think, we start thinking in these little algorithms. And all too often, then structure becomes shackles. And we get stuck not being able to um, reason or have what's called stage two thinking. So five and a half to nine pounds, flexed head, no, no gross anatomies, flanker complete breach, term. All right. We don't, I don't do preemies obviously at home. Mm-hmm. And for term for me is anywhere beyond about 35 weeks, 35 and a half. Mm-hmm. We have laws in California that say midwives can't deliver a baby before 37 weeks. So at 36 weeks and five or six days, they're supposed to send her to the hospital. How stupid is that? All right. Yeah. You know yeah. what time it is. What time is it? It's booby time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, it's time for bamboobies. 
Yay! Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about Bamboobies. And today I wanted to talk, they're one of our partners who we love, and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of their side products. You know, we talk a lot about their their nipple shields and their all the things that you like so much. But they also have um, some uh, mixes for, you put in milk for lactation support or in water and energy boost. They have a nipple balm, they have a belly balm, and they have a stretch mark balm, which I am always skeptical about, but you know, why not? Why not yeah. try it? So what's your experience with them? With with bamboobies? Yeah, just you, you know, give us your, your, your love, give them some love really quick. <laughs> um, well, as you guys, those of you who have been listeners have, have known that um, I love environmentally conscious products. And so the fact that they use bamboo is a big thing and that they're reusable and that they use um, all natural um, herbs and, and salves is really a big deal in terms of how I make recommendations to my clients. So I'm a big supporter of their whole line. And when you get 40% off by going to bamboobies.com and putting in uh, code instincts, you can't go wrong in trying some of these products. And, they, and, they, and they're supporting our podcast, which allows us to bring this information to you. So please support uh, Bamboobies as one of our partners. Okay. Yay. It's, it's so interesting to hear you say all this stuff because we're talking specifically about breach. And you're talking about these guidelines and these limits and these, you know, these. But but in, I mean, I'm sure it's it's the same in in the states. But in the UK, the number of clients that I have that are told they have to be induced because their baby is too big, for and and literally just because of an ultrasound, you know, no no other risk factors, no other, purely just because baby is is measuring, you know, however many pounds, we want to induce you at, at thirty. 38, 39 weeks. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, it, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, my, my own, ex- well, not my own experience, I didn't give birth to myself, but my, my mum, <clears throat> you know, I was breech and my mum had a C-section oh. and my sister, uh, my little sister was deemed as, as big uh, and some mum had a second C-section section. So she's never, ever given birth naturally ever. Um, and it blows my mind, you know, that that if if people thought a different way and we and we, you know, we we understood this stuff better, that people wouldn't be having all these unnecessary C sections, you know. It, it, yeah, if we don't if we open our minds up a little bit and we'd understand that we are mammals and that nature designed a system. Somewhere in the, uh, in the 1920s, well, long before that, but somewhere it began to be where the medicalization of birth took over. Mm-hmm. And they actually did an active campaign to vilify natural birth and vilify midwives. Yep. And the medical model took over and they're, they've hung on to it ever since. And, you know, it may be to the point where we end up having to use their tactics against them. And we may mm-hmm. have to then start to vilify the hospital birth as opposed to try to work with them. Um, ideally, we'd like to collaborate and make a smooth transition because we need hospital birthing. We definitely need it. But 85% of women who are normal don't should not be birthing in a hospital. And the idea that you have to birth a baby who's 35 and 36 weeks that can't be born at home, think about this for a second. The labor is the labor is the labor is the labor. It's the same. If a baby comes out at 35 weeks, and has a mild respiratory problem, and after an hour isn't transitioning well, you can take the baby to the hospital. 
all right? But if you send a woman to the hospital while she's still pregnant, she's going to get all these interventions. She's going to end up with, uh, you know, uh, ruptured membranes, pitocin, an epidural, maybe a C-section, maybe not, but baby separation, all that stuff, no skin to skin, all these things, because the baby's premature, we have to take the baby to the nursery, blah, 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 blah. So why would, why would a woman want to do that? And, and I've extrapolated that, Aaron, to, to, to breaches, I mean, excuse me, to diabetics and to hypertensives. Mm -hmm. If I have a really well-controlled diabetic, and by the way, diabetes today is not the same illness as it was 50 years ago, because women now have implants. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't take care of men diabetics. I mean, I'm just talking about, <clears throat> but, but they have implants. So we know in real time what their blood sugar is. Mm -hmm. And we can just say, okay, push a button, give yourself a little extra insulin. And we can, so there's no more insulin drips. There's no more waiting 30 minutes to get the result of a finger stick blood sugar, sending it down to the lab. Mm -hmm. So if they're stable all the way through their pregnancy and they're stable in labor, why do they need to be in the hospital? And people will say, well, what if her blood sugar goes crazy? Well, we can control that. And if it goes really crazy, so then they get in the car and drive to the hospital mm. or they call an ambulance and they say, well, what about the baby experiencing seizures or hypoglycemia after? Well, we can, we can take care of that too. Mm. One, we can give the baby supplemental milk, which we at every diabetic and every twin pregnancy I have, we have a great community here of uh, frozen donor milk and we have it in our clients' freezers. And if we need it, we use it. Um, so the baby will latch and then we'll put a little tube in. It's called the supplemental nursing system. You've heard of it. And we inject a little bit of milk as they're going along. So they're getting mom's colostrum and a little bit of donor milk and we keep their calories up and we can do that. And you don't need to take them to the nursery and give them and separate them from their mom and their IV. By the way, if you ask the physician, what's the best way for a baby to regulate its blood sugar? They will say, well, you probably have to give it some IV or no, it's to be skin to skin with its mother. Mm -hmm. To temperature, respiratory rate, blood sugar, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. when, they're when they're skin to skin with their mother, these things are regulated. Mm -hmm. The first thing we do when we have a diabetic baby in the hospital is it goes over to the warmer so they can keep an eye on it. So, I mean, maybe that's changed. I've been out of the hospital for 11 years, so I, I don't know, but that's the way it was. And then they, they would let the mom have the baby for a few minutes and then say, we have to take the baby to the nursery for observation. Yeah. But wait a minute, again, the thinking process, why can't you observe the baby on the mother's chest? And the answer is probably a staffing issue. So we're taking the baby to the nursery, not because there's a medical reason for it, but because of staffing. And yeah. that's ridiculous. Because why can't the mother and the father watch the baby? Why do we need a certified nurse professional to watch the baby? Most babies in the world are not watched by nurses, they're watched by mother and father. Mm or mother mostly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. It's as if you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole, that's why I said the whole system from the top down is not designed properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I totally, it's, I mean, yeah. what's the worst position you can labor in? On your back. What's the most common position you labor in? On your back. Right. Yeah. And that's right. actually, that's a story that I tell all of my clients as well, is why, why we labor on our backs. Cause the, the reason is horrific. It's awful. It's awful. Tell it, tell it real quickly, because I think I, <clears throat> I guess. Uh, you're going to test my, because I can never remember which Louis it is. There was a, a Louis, Louis the something, French king, um, who um, he had 20 children uh, from various wives and mistresses. Um, and um, in, in the 17th century, women, 
birthed standing up or on birthing stools and the midwives would kneel on the floor and look up to help you know facilitate the birth because he was a king and he was royal he wasn't getting on his feet uh, sorry on his knees um but he had a perverse desire to see his children being born um so he insisted that all of his wives and mistresses um gave birth on their backs and because royalty did that it became the norm and it spread across europe and now now we all give birth on our backs because it's easier for other people to see what's going on. It's not because it's easiest for the person giving birth. I have to ask this question because it just, right now we encourage husbands to watch their babies being born. Was it perverse for Louis to do it back then? Or was he just like a- mm, it's a good point. A progressive, good was he point. just a progressive dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, now we have dads help catch their babies. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. If they want to, and if the mother wants them to, that's that's mm -hmm. how it works. But mm -hmm. um, okay, so so that so we've really covered then then as far as for home breach birth, we know what those five criteria are. The sixth criteria is um, the mother has to have a normal pelvis. Mm -hmm. So it used to be in the era of academia that we would do what's called X-ray pelvimetry, change to MRI pelvimetry, but a woman would be in labor. And they would take her up to the X, uh, up to radiology and in labor, and they would take a flat plate and a cross table lateral X-ray of her pelvis while she's in labor. And then we would take out a little ruler and we'd measure the intraspinous diameter, the AP diameter, and the transverse diameter. And if they weren't, uh, I think, 10, 11, and 12 millimeter, uh, centimeters, if anyone didn't meet that criteria, then they had to have a C-section. Okay, and that was the thinking because this is how bean counters count beans: is that they have to have numbers but did anyone ever no one can see my the horror on my face right now <laughs> no i should i should have commented but this is the first time you're hearing this story it's, yeah yeah <laughs> so but no one ever raised their hand and said excuse me um the pelvis is a dynamic organ and the worst position you can possibly be in for the pelvis opening mm. is flat on your back mm -hmm. what position do they take people as x-rays in flat oh, on their back yeah. So there are people like, uh, there are studies that have been done, including Frank Lewin published some stuff on, they did MRIs on women um, on their back, and then they did them on, on the kneeling position, all fours. And they found that there was a 20 to 30% increase in the space in the pelvis. So we sectioned women because they were a half a centimeter off on an x-ray of their pelvis because of a paper that came out in the late 70s. Mm that said that it needs to be 10, 11, and 12 for those measurements. Um, and we thought that we were being innovative. We thought that we were being progressive. We thought that we were being scientific. What we were really being was foolish, mm. obtuse, and, and, and not clear thinking. But that was, again, that was the solution to the problems of the past. And, you know, the, the old saying that today's problems are yesterday's solutions and today's solutions will be tomorrow's problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's it's absolutely true. And it couldn't be more true when it comes to breech birth mm -hmm. because of, this, of, the, of these dumb things that they did. They took something that was working perfectly fine that doctors all knew how to do. And, they, and then the little the guys in academia who need to publish papers and come up with stuff had to micromanage it. Yeah. And this is what happens. Sometimes things don't need to be micromanaged. And, and as Bliss likes to say, sometimes you don't need a study to prove what's obvious. Mm -hmm. You just yeah. don't. Yeah. 
This is the uh, thing. This, I mean, this is my co-host on the podcast, by the way, for people that don't know. It's, it's, I think it's fantastic. We have all of these medical adva- advancements and we have these, the, you know, all of these tools and drugs and, and ability to, to help if things need it. But it's, it's, the, it's the proactive nature of, of just in case, which is causing issues, isn't it? You know, causing massive issues when it comes to birth. Yeah, I mean they're 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 preparing for the for the rare thing and they're screwing up the common thing by doing that. Mm-hmm. And ultimately they can do that if they want to, but they ought they need to offer the information to the patient and let the patient make her own decision. Mm-hmm. And that's where they've gone off the deep end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, a clinically adequate pelvis is a woman who's got a pelvis. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. Unless she unless she's had a crushing pelvic accident or some congenital skeletal deformity, which is really, I've never seen that, but, yeah. but otherwise any woman with a pelvis has an adequate pelvis because nature would not design that. And if, by the way, the baby is too big to fit out, what will happen? Will that be an emergency? No, her labor will just stall out mm-hmm. and she'll go get a C-section like any other person whose labor stalled out. Number seven and eight are no-brainers for home birthing. One, labor has to start spontaneously. We don't induce labor. Number number eight is that mother and baby have to tolerate labor. Clearly, you can't have a mother who has a seizure or hypertension going crazy or a baby that's got deep variable decelerations. And then number nine is a very uh, nebulous one, but very important. And I call it the right parental mindset that the parents have to trust their body, trust their practitioner, trust that this is a you can't take somebody in my country who was planning a hospital birth with an epidural at two centimeters yeah. who finds out that now she's breached and not only she breached, but she's going to have it at home and it's uh, eh, going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, it's for some people it might, but you have to be able to assess that and you have to determine. And for, for many people, they should, that, that person should have a C-section if they're not, there's no option in the hospital and a C-section isn't the devil. Uh, it just needs to be the patient's choice after she's been given enough information to make an informed choice. So, so in the interests of informed choice, what are the risks involved with a C-section for breach? Because I, I, you know, as I kind of insinuated earlier, we talk a lot about the risks of vaginal breach birth, but we don't really talk about the risks of a C-section for breach. Well, the risks, the risks in any form of breach birth to the baby are small. The Royal College has really done the best research on this, your college, and they rounded out the numbers, and I'll just briefly go after them, and then I'll talk specifically about cesarean. But the risk of neonatal mortality, which is the, again, remember baby in the bassinet. So they use neonatal mortality as the only endpoint. They don't use mother's well-being, baby's well-being, future baby's well-being. It's neonatal mortality. The risk of a neonatal mortality with a breech born by cesarean section is one in 2,000. The risk of a breech baby born vaginally of neonatal mortality is one in 500. Mm-hmm. So that's a fourfold increase in risk, but it's really wrong to compare vaginal breech birth to cesarean breech birth because vaginal breech birth is random. You don't know how the skill of the practitioner, you don't know anything. Where cesarean breech birth is pretty standardized. Everybody does cesareans pretty much the same way. So you should compare it to head down vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. And the risk of neonatal death with head down vaginal birth is about one in a thousand or about half as risky as breech. Mm-hmm. So those are the numbers. But if you take it the other way around and you look at what's the risk of something bad not happening, mm-hmm. with a cesarean birth, it's 99.95%. With a 
vaginal head down birth, it's 99.9%. And with a vaginal breech birth, it's 99.8% that something bad isn't going to happen. Now, if you told a woman that in skilled hands, you have a 99.8% chance of something really terrible not happening, mm -hmm. how many people are going to think that they should have a C-section for that? Mm -hmm. Okay, some might, fine, but most will not. Mm -hmm. But that's not what they're told. They're told the risk is four to 10 times. Sometimes they come up with these 20 times. I don't know where they come up with the numbers. They come up with, they make stuff up. Mm -hmm. They come up with these numbers that are you know, extremely risky, but relative risk doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. at all, unless you know what the denominator is. Yeah. yeah. Something could be a hundred times riskier. It sounds horrible, but the analogy I always use in, in my state is that if something happens once last year in California, the incidence is one in uh 40 million if it happens uh a hundred times it's one in four hundred thousand that's a hundredfold increase and it's still zero yeah yeah okay. and it's 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 again it's something that we i talk about a lot when we talk about risk is you know a lot of people you know when they go and see an obstetrician or they see a consultant they'll have these these risks thrown at them and they'll have statistics thrown at them um you know you are you're 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 twice as likely to to you know for your baby to die which i frankly no one should ever be saying to a pregnant person you know you're you know talking about the, pulling that dead baby baby card out it, which is really really wrong because you're fear-mongering somebody into into you know, into agreeing with with the procedure then um but saying something is twice as likely to happen it doesn't really mean anything unless you give them actually the the, the information that the actual, actual risk, actual risk you know yeah when you hear these are these are signs that you if you start to notice them you can never unsee them mm -hmm. when people use you see them in the news media all the time you know they'll say um like uh this is coming soon mm -hmm. What does soon mean? Yeah. I've seen signs up that say, you know, new store coming soon. It's been up for two years. Mm. Um, you could, you, you see the, in our profession, you see that somebody says, hey, risky, mm. or the fluid is lowish, mm -hmm. or your baby is big. Mm -hmm. right? These are vague terms that don't mean anything, mm -hmm. but they use them uh, to funnel you down a path they want you to take. You need to say when someone says risky, you need to ask them, well, what is the actual risk? Yeah. If someone says your fluid is low, you say, well, what is the actual number? Mm. And they'll say, well, it's seven. Mm. And they'll say, well, what's normal? And they'll and you'll they'll have to tell you a pocket of two centimeters or a four quadrant of five centimeters or more. Well, but seven is more than five. You know, um, so why are you saying it's lowish? You know, how do you know what it was yesterday or the day before? Yeah. And we know that fluid, and by the way, I will just tell this for, for you listeners, that frank breech babies tend to have lower, lower amniotic fluid volume. My theory is, is because they're folded up like that, they probably don't perfuse their kidneys as well. Mm -hmm. So they make less fetal urine. Mm -hmm. Because most of the amniotic fluid at term is fetal urine. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, so that you, that's why frank breech babies, you know, you look, you try to do a version and you find they're, they're sort of tight in there. There's not a lot of fluid. It's not surprising. And they'll say, well, we better section you because the fluid is lowish. Well, lowish is actually fairly normal for a frank breech baby. Mm -hmm. but they don't know that because they don't know breech. They mm -hmm. don't study breech. They don't actually do continuing education in breech. Mm -hmm. It's not one of the things that's really emphasized in the 
maintenance of certification that OBs have to go through if they want to follow their path to the, the board certification. Um, okay, so you said uh, with C-section, the actual risk. Well, the risks are, interestingly enough, in the term breach trial, the, the, the one that was bad for everybody, um, the most horrendous injuries were actually babies born breached by cesarean section. And they were neck injuries and brachial plexus injuries, which is like shoulder injuries, that sort of thing, because people still didn't, they, they didn't know what they were doing and they would just pull on babies and you pull on babies, you're going to get an injury. Because ba breach babies born by C-section still come out of breach. They still breach. Yes. And you still have to know your maneuvers. Yeah. So if you know your maneuvers to get them out by cesarean section, why can't you just do it vaginally? But again, I think it's the idea that I can always cut a bigger hole because that's, that's my guess is that if the head can't, I can't get the head out, I can cut a bigger hole. I can cut the uterus wide open if I have to, to get the head out. So that's that, I think that's the thinking, but that's crazy thinking. First of all, it's yeah. morbid to the mother, but second of all, babies are designed to fit out the vagina. And if you know what you're doing, they'll do it. And that's the beauty of watching a breech birth is they progress normally. If they, if they're going to go normally, the feet or the rump begins to protrude. It almost always protrudes sacrum transverse, mm -hmm. all right? Which means this, the butt is side, the baby's facing the side. And as they come out, they begin to rotate. And if the arms are in front of the chest and not behind the head, the baby will rotate almost perfectly uh, to being uh, where the baby's um, tummy is toward the mom's anus mm -hmm. and the baby's back is toward the mom's symphysis pubis. Mm -hmm. And when they rotate that way, you know the arms are in a good position. And this baby in all fours position will likely either deliver itself or just need minimal assistance mm -hmm. um so yeah so and that's and that and it's really not that complicated and it's amazing to watch it really is amazing to watch and each baby needs to be individualized i know that some people have come out with like almost an algorithm of time i think you talked about it with one of your your guests when you talked about her breech birth mm -hmm. that well i had like five minutes to this or three minutes to that or whatever else I'm not a big fan of that because some babies need to come out much quicker than that. And the way you can tell that is by looking at their capillary filling, mm -hmm. which is the color and whether they blend their tone, are they making tummy crunches? Are they moving their feet, mm -hmm. their heart rate going into that? And if they're, you know, if they look like they're still vigorous, then you just leave them alone. Yeah. If they start to look floppy, then you can expedite mm -hmm. and you know you're supposed to do that. Uh, when you start timing things, you start again, it becomes structure and it becomes shackles because now you have people could be sitting in judgment because you went five minutes in two seconds and mm -hmm. you know and then if something bad does happen you now have somebody who can say that you should have done it this way yeah and there's no should have done it this way or that way because every birth is unique in some fashion mm. so you we we we, we touched on on giving birth on your back and how that's not the best position to give birth in. What is, what would you say is, is a good position to be in if you are giving birth to a breech baby? Is it, is, are there different ones compared to a, a head down cephalic baby? Not really. I mean, lately, I mean, people are doing head down on upright too sometimes, mm -hmm. but being upright. So being on all fours or leaning on the putting and being on, you know, putting your knees on a mat and leaning on the bed so that your butt is down and your chest is higher. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that way you have gravity working for you. Mm -hmm. Some women push well that way. Other women don't. 
Mm-hmm. I would tell you that most of my breaches start out on all fours pushing and almost a half of them end up on their back mm-hmm. because they just, their arms get tired or they're just not comfortable with that, or they're not pushing yeah. well. It's harder to coach somebody with that in that position. Mm-hmm. Some women, even though I know that a lot of my midwife friends will cringe at this, but some women actually request that, that you like guide them with your fingers. Yeah. So you put a little rectal pressure on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they get a sense of where they're pushing to more. Mm-hmm. Now, some women are very coordinated, and multips are you know don't need much help of anything. But first time moms sometimes they just quite can't get the mechanism down, mm-hmm. so they need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a big fan of birth stools, although birth stools are fairly popular in your country. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen some of the worst tears that I've ever gotten in my career on the birth stool. I just think that I don't know. It's maybe it's hard to protect the perineum. Maybe it's because I. I'm not skilled in them. I, I was never trained in birth stools. I've been using them now for quite a while, but I still feel a little bit like an auto mechanic. I'm laying on my back. <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't have the access to protect the, yeah. the clitoral area or the, or the perineum. Um, and sometimes you see these splits or these other things that you really would prefer not to have. Yeah. But there's far less trauma, I think, with breech birth to the perineum than with head down birth. And there's certainly less trauma in the all fours position to the perineum than there is in the lithotomy or on your back position. Mm-hmm. And, and what about um, water birth? Is that an option for a breech birth or is that a no-no? Yeah, it is an option. I'm again, uh, again, I'm not, tr- I was never trained in water birth. So water birth was an acquired skill for me. Mm-hmm. Um, some women that laboring in water is marvelous and I'm for laboring in water for all women because it's an, it's an analgesia that makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. But it doesn't take away the communication you're having with your baby because you're still uncomfortable and you still feel your surges. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem I found in a couple of, of breech bursts on all fours in the water is that the whole purpose of being on all fours is to use gravity. Mm-hmm. And when you're in water, you don't have any gravity. Mm-hmm. So the baby tends to float up yeah. instead of hang down. Mm-hmm. Right Now, if it's a multip, again, multips are forgiving. I jokingly, lovingly say that multips are different species than primips because they really are the numbers, the statistics, and, and everything are different with them. Yeah. But um, if a woman is in the water and she's progressing and we can monitor the baby okay, there's mm-hmm. no reason to get her out of the water. Mm-hmm. But if the if the if it's harder to monitor the baby or we think they're not progressing well, they're struggling, uh, or the midwife isn't comfortable with it or whatever, then trying to get them out of the water makes more sense to do it where you're more comfortable as long as the mom's okay with it. Sometimes we, we talk about a mom getting out of the water and then we get to that point, she says, I'm not getting out of the water. And then she doesn't get out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, right. It, that's, it, that's it, I think there'll be lots of people who are interested to hear that. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much of an option here giving birth in a pool, in a birthing center or midwifery led unit is an option. Um, because I suspect breech birth is considered high risk and therefore they wouldn't allow you to give birth on a midwifery led unit unit or a birthing center um, if you if you have a breech baby which means that then it's either labor ward or home birth where you can hire your own pool and you're going to end up doing what the practitioner is comfortable with Mm -hmm. and sometimes we have to compromise I mean again there are certain things where women should not compromise and there are certain battles that aren't worth fighting. And some, yeah. you know, if the hospital wants you to have an IV and that's the worst thing they do to you. And so you succumb to that one, but then you make sure you don't have not put anything in it or whatever, but mm. you know, there are certain battles worth fighting and other battles that aren't. 
In an ideal situation, there would be no battles, and you would do what Sarah Buckley likes to say is just be safe, quiet, and unobserved, and be able to labor um, as nature did, as nature intended for all mammals. Yeah. Uh, what we do to the human female, you would never do to any other farm animal or any other wild animal. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why my colleagues don't see that. Mm. I don't. I don't understand exactly how they became so convinced that that the modern woman cannot deliver her baby without medical help. Well, see, that's why we were talking before before we started the podcast. We were talking about Rachel, Dr. Rachel Reed's book, yeah. and when it when I send you the book, and if you start reading it, you you'll you'll see why it, it, it the the history of 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 birth is in there, and it's it's an eye opener. Um, but but it's it, again, it's interesting when I talk to my clients about hypnobirthing and about the hormones and how we desire as mammals this undisturbed birth. And I, I use the, the comparison to a, a vet, you know, in a zoo, observing a tiger giving birth. They don't go and stand around the, the tiger. They set cameras up and they can leave it, they leave it the hell alone because they know that a tiger being observed will, will interfere with, with, the, with the labor and it puts the cubs at risk. But when it comes to humans, yeah. we have this urge Every, to interfere. Everything you do is antithetical to nature's design. From the uh -huh. minute you get the car to drive to the hospital, until you put your baby in the car seat to drive home, mm -hmm. everything they've done to you is not what nature would design. Yeah. It's really interesting. You were talking about that. We were, I was talking with my student the other day. No, I actually was with my colleague, Dr. Flores. We were driving back from a home birth in Santa, I mean, a home visit in Santa Barbara. And we were talking about the Ventura County Fair and how sometimes they'll have like a pig or a cow or something giving birth. And people standing around can watch the cow giving birth. And it's like, I've never witnessed that. I've just thought, how rude is that? Mm. How unnatural is that? Yeah. You know, if you want to do that, put the cow in a, in a, in a thing with maybe one-way glass or something, or mm. use video monitors, but don't let people be standing around making noise and, mm. and, and little kids going, mommy, what's that? You know, you know in, to the cow, um, maybe they haven't, maybe they, maybe they don't do that anymore, but I just, uh, again, it's, it's a way of thinking, and you're right. Uh, uh, Rachel Reed's book is it Rachel Reed? Is that her mm -hmm. name? Yeah. I mean, it explains maybe how we got here, mm -hmm. but it doesn't explain why we're staying here. It doesn't, or, or maybe it does. Mm -hmm. Why people can't just think for themselves, and why, why all these people coming out of residency? I know they're indoctrinated into something, but God forbid, think for yourself. But I think you've hit the nail on the head, though, when you were talking about having that groundswell of demand from the people giving birth. And I think that's where my passion lies and your passion and a lot of the other birth workers that I know and that I, I talk to. It's that informing and putting that information out there so people are aware and they can apply pressure to their caregivers to give them choice. Because I think as a society, as a Western society, we are it is ingrained in us to fear birth um, and, and to comply. Um, and, and unless you have that information, I mean, I, I know for a fact I didn't the first time I gave birth. I did what everyone else does. And I just kind of thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to plan. I'm not going to get my hopes up. It's probably going to go wrong. And I'm just going to go to hospital and give birth. And I didn't even consider any other options because it's yeah, your, story is your story is the norm. And, yeah. and, you, and women have to start doing this long before they're ever even pregnant. You can't wait till you're pregnant or in the seventh or eighth month to try to figure this out because then 
first of all, you, you, that's not good for your developing baby for you to be stressed out all the time. Mm -hmm. And those, those last months are for nesting and resting and, you know, doing all the fun things and getting ready and stuff. And when you have all breach is one of those things where you suddenly find out your baby's breach and your whole final month of your pregnancy is thrown into upheaval mm -hmm. um, because of the lack of choices. I would suggest that people watch the Heads Up documentary. It's uh, you can I think it's on Vimeo. It's called Heads Up: The Disappearing Art of Breach Delivery, because a couple of the mothers say some really eloquent things in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, we show one breach birth on, on in lithotomy on her back because it was early in my home birth career, and um, that's the way I had always done them. And it was before uh, Frank Lewin came out with his upright breach birth paper, um, but uh, it's still a very good documentary. Mm -hmm. And the thing that comes out most important is the lack of choices yeah. and the stories. There's six women that give their story and, and three doctors that talk uh, uh, about it. So it's, it's, it's only about 32 minutes long. It's worth seeing. I'll, I'll link it in the, um, in the, okay. the post and, and in the bio of the, um, of the podcast episode so that everyone can Great. access it. Great. I hope we've covered it. Yeah. Well, Thank again, you so this much. is one of a passion topic for me. I could talk about it. I, I, I could continue talking to you about this for hours, but <laughs> we probably have to stop at some point. But thank you so much for, for your time, because I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I know that there, there are people dying to for me to upload this and, and, and share it. So, well, I hope you'll have me on again soon. I, I definitely will. Certainly, because we're going to talk about twins, aren't we? So, yeah, yes, that yes, was, definitely. That was, that was, that was between that you was and me. Nudge, nudge, <laughs> Uh, okay thank you thanks for listening to the birthing instincts podcast we know that we all lead busy lives so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week if you enjoyed this episode please share and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews to help others join us you can find dr stew at birthing instincts and bliss at birthing bliss midwifery on instagram 